Welcome to the September 16th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review an integrated analysis of one of the largest adult BCR-ABLE1-negative BALL patient cohorts treated in a single trial. Learn more about the genotypic and phenotypic features of patients with clonal cytopenias. And look at a study showing that a serine protease expressed in the placenta cleaves alpha-1 antitrypsin to generate a fragment that inhibits formation of neutrophil extracellular traps in neonates. Our first topic is a manuscript entitled Molecular Classification Improves Risk Assessment in Adult BCR-ABLE1-Negative BALL by Elizabeth Paeta from Montefiore Medical Center in Bronx, New York, and colleagues from multiple institutions in the United States and United Kingdom. By way of background, according to Felicitas Toll from Hanover Medical School in Germany, who provides commentary on the study, a crucial discrimination in BALL lies in whether it is BCR-ABLE1 negative or positive. In BCR-ABLE1 positive ALL, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, such as imatinib or dasatinib, is an essential element of therapy. However, only 2 to 5% of children and 20 to 30% of adults with BALL are BCR-ABLE1 positive. BCR-ABLE1 negative BALL is genetically very heterogeneous, and still insufficiently understood compared to BCR-ABLE1-positive BALL. Toll points out that the study by Payetta and colleagues is of great interest because it includes data from the international UK ALL12 ecog Akron e2993 trial, which is the largest cohort ever reported of adolescent and adult BCR-ABLE1-negative BALL treated within a single trial. A total of 1,229 patients were enrolled between 1993 and 2006, with 820 in the UK cohort and 409 in the E2993 cohort. All were treated with a non-risk-adapted approach. The median age was 30 years, ranging from 14 to 65 years of age. Notably, the majority of the patients were classified as BALL not otherwise specified, the subgroup of which least is known in regard to genetic and prognostic features. In the current study, the authors sought to conduct an integrated analysis of the data from this cohort to include genomic profiling, immunophenotyping, and outcome evaluation. While 93% of patients achieved remission, 41% relapsed at a median of 13 months. Five-year overall survival was 42%. Transcriptome sequencing, gene expression profiling, cytogenetics, and fusion PCR enabled genomic subtyping of 282 patient samples from the E2993 study, of which 264 were eligible for trial. This cohort was representative of the entire enrolled trial population. In the clinical protocol, patients over 35 years of age or with a white blood cell count of greater than 30 times 10 to the 9th per liter at presentation were designated high risk. Paeta and colleagues were able to identify three molecular risk groups by correlating genetics and outcome in their analysis of patient data from this trial. Among patients in the outcome analysis, 29.5% of cases had favorable outcomes with five-year overall survival of 65 to 80% and were deemed standard risk. These included DUX4 rearranged, T3 
TCF3-PBX1, PAX5-P80R, and high hyperdiploid cases. 50% had high-risk genotypes with five-year overall survival of 0 to 27%, including Philadelphia-like KMT2A-AFF1, low hypodiploid, near haploid, and bcl 2 mic rearranged Finally, about 20% of patients had intermediate-risk genotypes, including PAX5-ALT and ZNF384-like, with a five-year overall survival of 33 to 45%. Their data analysis also showed that IKZF1 alterations occurred in 86% of Philadelphia-like BALL and that TP53 mutations were enriched in low hypodiploid and BCL2 MIC rearranged patients, but were not independently associated with outcome. Notably, approximately 40% of patients classified as high risk for relapse per the original protocol based on age and white blood count were reclassified based on genetic alterations as either standard or intermediate risk and had superior outcome. The authors also identified distinct immunophenotypic features for DUX4 rearranged, PAX5P80R, ZNF384R-like, and Philadelphia-like genotypes. In conclusion, these data from a large adult BALL cohort treated with a non-risk-adapted approach in a single trial elucidate the prognostic importance of genomic analyses, which may translate into future therapeutic benefits. Toll suggests in her commentary that this study represents an ideal patient cohort, since all patients were uniformly treated without prior risk adaption. The results also demonstrate the direct clinical benefit of comprehensive genetic analysis. However, many questions still remain for future investigation. Since minimal disease monitoring was not done in this trial, we lack data as to how this monitoring might help assess treatment success and risk stratification. Additionally, an analysis of cooperating lesions between risk group-defining lesions was not done and is a critical question. Furthermore, the treatment landscape has evolved for adult BALL patients since completion of the trial, which could affect outcomes. The role of allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation in different genetic subgroups also deserves analysis. And last but not least, the high costs associated with a comprehensive genetic analysis are challenging for providers and healthcare systems. Nonetheless, this study is an important step toward better understanding the heterogeneity of adult BALL and how this can be applied clinically. Our next study is entitled Relationship Between Clone Metrics and Clinical Outcome in Clonal Cytopenia by Anna Gali from the Department of Hematology Oncology, San Mateo Hospital Foundation, and colleagues from University of Pavia in Pavia, Italy. Clonal Cytopenia of Undetermined Significance, or CCUS, is associated with an increased risk of progression to myeloid neoplasms associated with myelodysplasia, but the rate of progression is highly variable. From a clinical standpoint, Demonstrating the clonal nature of hematopoiesis is particularly important in those cytopenias that do not fulfill the current diagnostic criteria for myeloid malignancy, such as CCUS or clonal monocytosis. However, how to use molecular profiling in these patients is still unclear. In particular, several issues related to CCUS remain to be clarified, including mutation signatures truly causative of cytopenia and factors contributing to the clinical expressivity of clones as well as mechanisms of progression into overt malignancy.
Here, the authors sought to identify the features of the mutant clones that were associated with clinical phenotype and progression. The study included four distinct cohorts of individuals, who were either hematology patients followed at Policlinico San Mateo and the University of Pavia, or living in the community. They studied a prospective cohort of 311 patients with idiopathic cytopenia of undetermined significance, diagnosed between 2003 and 2019, who were sequentially investigated at diagnosis and during follow-up, either in a phase of stable disease or at the time of progression to myelodysplasia. In addition, they looked at 592 patients with myeloid neoplasms with myelodysplasia, 177 individuals aged 60 years or older with unexplained anemia of the elderly, identified in several population-based studies, and 355 healthy individuals aged 60 years or older. 92 of the 311, or 30% of the patients with idiopathic cytopenia, carried a somatic genetic lesion that allowed diagnosis of CCUS. Clonal hematopoiesis was detected in almost 20% of non-anemic healthy individuals, but in almost one-third of those with unexplained anemia. Different mutation patterns and variant allele frequencies were used as parameters to define clone metrics in the conditions studied. Recurrent mutation patterns exhibited different variant allele frequency values that were associated with marrow dysplasia, indicating variable clinical expressivity of mutant clones. The authors performed a cluster analysis and identified two major clusters. One cluster was characterized by isolated DNMT3A mutations, referred to as a clonal hematopoiesis-like cluster. The second cluster had combinatorial mutation patterns, referred to as a myeloid neoplasm with myelodysplasia cluster. This latter and less favorable group encompassed mutations in splicing factors, TP53 or DNMT3A, TET2, or ASXL1 genes in combination with additional mutated genes. For CCUS patients, the two clusters had different risk of progression into myelodysplasia. Within the myelodysplasia-like cluster, distinct subsets with different risk of progression to myeloid neoplasms with myelodysplasia could also be identified based on clone metrics. Clonal size was the most significant predictor of risk for progression, and variant allele frequencies of less than 10% did not appear to carry an increased risk of progression. In conclusion, Gali and colleagues suggest these findings unveil a marked variability in the clinical expressivity of mutated driver genes in precursor conditions for myelodysplasia, underscoring the limitations of morphologic dysplasia for clinical staging of mutant hematopoietic clones. They also identified clinically relevant genetic clusters within currently defined precursor conditions. While selected genotypes have potential to provide evidence of bona fide myelodysplasia, clone metrics, as defined by mutation patterns and variant allele frequencies, appears to be critical for informing clinical decision-making in patients with clonal cytopenia. In her commentary, Amy Desern from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland, states that this study provides more information on the actual clonal burden in CCUS than previously reported and may also help in identifying the cause of unexplained anemia in older adults. She notes that myeloid neoplasms can evolve from clonal cytopenias as a result of increased variant allele frequency or acquisition of new mutations, and that while we have previously known the value of serial monitoring, the improved understanding of clonal metrics identified in this study stresses its importance. She further points out that future studies would benefit from including the incorporation of molecular diagnostics, 
including variant allele frequency, into the World Health Organization classification of myeloid neoplasms. And finally, the improvements in diagnosis and prognostication in clonal cytopenias applied from this study may ultimately pave the way for early therapeutic intervention to alter the natural history of myelodysplasia. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. Our final manuscript today is titled, Placental HTRA1 Cleaves Alpha-1 Antitrypsin to Generate a Net Inhibitory Peptide, by Robert Campbell from University of Utah Molecular Medicine Program in Salt Lake City, Utah. Neutrophil extracellular traps, or NETs, are formed by neutrophils in response to inflammatory stimuli. NETs are web-like chromatin structures studded with cytosolic proteins and granule enzymes that can provide a barrier to limit the spread of infection and may even affect extracellular microbial killing. However, exaggerated NET formation can cause inflammatory tissue damage and may contribute to pathology in a variety of settings, including autoimmune disorders, diabetes, atherosclerosis, cancer, sepsis, and preeclampsia. This group previously reported that fetal and neonatal neutrophils from umbilical cord fail to form nets due to circulating net inhibitory peptides, or NIPs, that are cleavage fragments of alpha-1 antitrypsin. However, how fetal and neonatal NIPs are generated remained unknown. Campbell and colleagues reasoned that since net inhibitory activity was higher in umbilical cord blood plasma than in adult plasma, Placental proteases might be involved in generating NIPs. Fetal syncytotropoblasts in the placenta expresses a protease called high-temperature requirement serine protease A1, or HTRA1, that can cleave alpha-1 antitrypsin. The team therefore further hypothesized that HTRA1 might be the protease responsible for generating NIPs in fetal blood vessels. They found that umbilical cord blood plasma has elevated HTRA1 levels compared to adult plasma, and both recombinant and placenta-eluted HTRA1 cleaves alpha-1 antitrypsin to generate a cleavage fragment of similar molecular weight to previously identified NIPs that block net formation by adult neutrophils. Next, they demonstrated that neonatal mouse plasma contains alpha-1 antitrypsin fragments that inhibit net formation by neutrophils isolated from adult mice. This is the first evidence showing that the neonatal net inhibition system is conserved across species. They also showed that LPS-stimulated neutrophils isolated from newborn mice exhibit delayed net formation following birth. To establish the importance of HTRA1, they obtained HTRA1 knockout mice. Plasma from neonatal HTRA1 knockout mice had no detectable NIPs, and neutrophils from these mice were able to generate NETs sooner after birth compared to HTRA1-positive littermate controls. Finally, in the sequel slurry model of neonatal sepsis, they showed that a HTRA1 cleavage product of alpha-1 antitrypsin improved survival in newborn wild-type mice by preventing pathogenic net formation. The authors conclude their data indicate that placentally expressed HTRA1 is a key serine protease for cleavage of alpha-1 antitrypsin in utero to generate NIPs that regulate net formation by human and mouse neutrophils. 
Chio Oka from Nara Institute of Science and Technology in Japan provided an accompanying commentary on the study, suggesting it raises several important questions. One question is whether or not placental HTRA1 inhibits dysregulated excess net formation to maintain immune tolerance at the maternal-fetal interface and prevents abnormal placenta formation and gestation that lead to preeclampsia and intrauterine growth retardation. Oka also notes that HTRA1 is a member of a family of proteins that are distributed in a wide range of species, from bacteria, yeast, and plants, to humans. Bacterial HTRAs are heat shock proteins that degrade or refold denatured proteins under different stress conditions. Mammalian HTRA1 is also induced by oxidative stress and endoplasmic reticulum stress. In humans, loss of function mutation of the HTRA1 gene is the cause of a hereditary small vessel disease. Furthermore, abnormal expression and activity of HTRA1 is seen in various inflammatory diseases, such as age-related macular degeneration, osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, Alzheimer's disease, and cancer. Thus, another important issue is if and how neutrophil net formation regulated by HTRA1 is involved in the pathogenesis of these HTRA1-related diseases. Certainly, this study will inspire additional research on the regulation of NETs. For CME questions, a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries related to this podcast, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>